0: Thank you, too. Uh, you know, I want to sort of make this a little more uh, a, a little more casual this morning as we talk about the subject of opposition. And certainly appreciate any input as we go through this. Uh, we've been talking about Christian living in a fallen world. And, you know, when we started this thing out, we have to face realities. And reality, the two realities I want you to keep in mind. The first one is we live in this broken world. We live in this fallen world, and there are complications with it. It's very difficult. And we have to realize that. We have to face up to the truth of that, that it's not easy living a Christian life in a fallen world, in a broken world. It's hard. It's difficult. There's a lot that we have to deal with. We've talked about suffering. Today we're going to talk about opposition, that we're involved in a battle. But let me give you the other side real quick here first. Uh, Not only do we have to face the reality of that, but we also, what I'm going to cover in the next hour, is, but we're on the winning team. It's going to all come out fine. And we're going to win. And so in the midst of this, even when we're facing uh, extreme times of suffering or extreme times of opposition from the enemy, even though we're facing those things, there is a victory. Now, you see, you could go either way. You, you could be so down about all of this, if you're sold, and, and you just move into a life of existence in this world. That's not at all what I'm saying to you. God has given us this wonderful place to live, and he has called us and given us a mission that we are to go into this world to be his witnesses, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our test. I don't want this thing to sound so negative because I don't mean it to be. But we've got to face reality. So you follow what I'm saying? Uh, you know, if we don't know the enemy, if we don't know what we're facing, then we aren't prepared when the battles come. And yet, on the other hand, we don't get so absorbed in that that we get lost in the fact that, as I'm going to show you in the next hour, we're more really than conquerors through Christ. Yeah. And there's great victory that comes. And so all of this, the, the flow of redemptive history, remember creation, fall, redemption, and it moves to a consummation when everything's made right again. But we're in the battle. We're in that period of time. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And also, one other sort of preliminary thing to this, I, I said it the other night, but I'm not sure I made it as clear as I'd like it. We are not just in a defensive mode. All right? We're not just in a defensive mode. We're not to pull in and retreat and, and get in a defensive mode where that's all we do. No, no. Listen, when Jesus said told, told Peter, he said, The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. They shall not prevail against the church. That sounds like an offensive move to me, does you? Storing the gates of hell. They will not prevail against the church, and so We've got to see ourselves uh, when we go. I, I'm I'm going to be more aware of the enemy this morning, but I just don't want you to lose sight. But well, we're in an offensive battle, and we've got territory to claim, right? Because, is that clear? Making sense. Kind of what I'm talking about here. But well, let's go to your notes in section in section three, and that is, hey, we will face opposition in this world. Jesus made it very very clear in John 16. He said, "I've said these things to you." And you have peace. And then look at it. In the world you will have tribulation, period. Right? In the world you will have tribulation. And, and then you remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who last of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And if Jesus is saying these things, what he's saying to us is that we need to be prepared for tribulation. We need to be prepared, if necessary, for For even times of persecution, that's part of living in this fallen world. We will be persecuted. I'm sorry, we will face tribulation. We may be persecuted and threatened. But in the midst of all of this, what I've tried to also say to you, but we have Jesus. And even though these may be lifelong battles, lifelong struggles, we're not alone. We have Christ with us to uphold us and to take us through it. And to arm us and to protect us throughout all of these battles. And then we keep the end in mind that Jesus has already won the victory. And I'm going to talk about that next hour. Well, it's interesting. Now, we talked a little bit in the question and answer session yesterday about uh, the second coming of Christ and the end of times. And in his uh, second epistle of Timothy, Paul writes these words. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Let me stop right there. Last days, most of us would agree, the last days is a long period of time that started with Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and runs all the way up until Jesus comes back again. Those are the last days. We talked about uh, in the question and answer time, you know, how do we know when Jesus is coming back? Is there really a time? Is there a place that, that we can know? And the answer to that is no. But we live in these last days, but we live also knowing that at any moment Christ could come back. These are the last days. And there's a general description of the last days, and it says, These will be times of difficulty. See it? Let me just ask you this. Can you relate to that? (laughs) Right, you know, life is not, uh, life isn't easy. It's complicated, and there are going to be times of difficulty. Look at what he says. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. This one is interesting to me. Disobedient to their parents. Mm -hmm. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen, with conceit, lovers of pleasures. Rather than lovers of God, having the appearance appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, if you'll look at that carefully, what you'll really see at the heart of all of that is a a misplaced love. Listen to what it says. It says there will be lovers of self. You see that all around you? Don't we ourselves struggle with that? Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. It says they do not love good. And they're not lovers of God. It's a misplaced love. That's the world we live in. And as we think about it, there are three great enemies we face. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, let me talk briefly on each of those. First of all, the world. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. Pretty clear. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires for whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's interesting that John uses that word world more than any of the other New Testament writers. In fact, he uses the word world 69 times in his gospel account and 23 times in his first epistle. So he has a lot to say about the world. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to allow the context of it to define the meaning of it because there are at least three different ways that word world is used in the New Testament. Sometimes... It refers to the material world, to the world of nature, to the world that God has created. Uh, And and it's a beautiful thing. I mean, look, you know, this is, it's a beautiful thing what God has created. Sometimes that's the way the word is used. Sometimes it's talking about the human race as a whole, um, thought of as a world fallen into sin and in need of redemption. God so loved the world. Well, that's what he's talking about. But then sometimes it's also talking about the unbelieving pagan society that is hostile to Christ and hostile to his, to his, to his people. It is a, a value system, a value system that is in opposition to God and in opposition. And that's the way the term is used here. Do not love that. Do not love that world. So used as uh, being an enemy of the Christian, the world is that system of evil that stands against God and his people, and it is the environment that brings out the worst of fallen nature. Now, if you can imagine this for a minute, what do you call it, a, a greenhouse, a hothouse, you know what I'm saying, where you grow plants? Is that what you call it? What makes that, you know, here's, here's this greenhouse, and it is designed to give the perfect environment to make the plants grow, Right? The right temperature, the right environment, the right moisture, the right everything. Well, here's what I'm saying. That's what the world is. It, it, the world is like that hothouse, but it brings the worst out of us. You see it? We're going to talk about the flesh in a minute. Well, the world is that perfect environment to bring the depths of depravity of our, of, of our flesh out in it. It's the perfect environment. And so that is the world that we live in. And John spells out three dangerous aspects of living in the fallen world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh, human nature corrupted by sin. I'm going to deal with that in just a moment. The desires of the eyes, covetousness, sinful craving for that which is pleasing to our eyes. The pride of life, pride in material wealth, possessions, and worldly advantages, And let me tell you what that leads to. Those things lead to two sets of false truths, false identities. The first is that it leads to a sense of self-sufficiency. It leads to a sense of self-sufficiency where we think we have all of these things that the world offers to us and we're self-sufficient, we're fine. And you find people who really feel like they don't need God. Why Why do you... Christians talk about God, so he had everything, right? Haven't you met the the typical secular mind that has everything, that's very self-sufficient, that's very self-satisfied with all the possessions and all that that he has, so self-sufficiency. And the second thing is a vain sense of security. They think they're okay. They think their security is in their possessions and all of those things. And they rest in that until they fall And when they lose those things, what is the answer? And there's a huge issue with this, particularly in some of the cultures, where when there is a loss of face, the only answer you can have is suicide. Because you've lost everything. See? It's a false sense. It's a false sense of security. It's a false sense of of self-sufficiency. And yet that's what the world has. And that's this world we live in. And those are the people all around us who feel so self-sufficient. And who feels so secure. But it only takes a little bit for all that to crumble. Mm-hmm. And then they have nothing to fall on because in the world there will be tribulation, right? Haven't we already concluded that? Christian, non-Christian. And I've said from the beginning when what is the difference between a Christian and non-Christian living in this Christian world? The difference is we have Christ, they don't. Right? So that's the world system that we're it's in the book of Revelation. um, What is the imagery in the book of Revelation of the world? Do you remember? A great harlot called Babylon. Do you remember her? Listen, here it is. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird. A hunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. That imagery of the great harlot. And if you go read it in the book of Revelation. I mean, oh, she is something. The way she's presented things. Gives us a picture of what worldliness is. And it's everywhere. It corrupts both the great and the small. They're the the nations, the king of the earth, the merchants of the earth. All It's a powerful force, and it appears so attractive, but it can become so deadly. That's the world. Do you follow that now? Let me just stop and see. It's that system of evil that's against God. It's that environment in which we live that pulls out the worst things and makes us desire those things that causes us to be lovers of self and lovers of pleasure. You see, does that make sense? Comments? How does the world affect your life? Give me a few things. Living in the world as I just described, what are some things you struggle with? Distraction. Boy, it gets us out of our kilter? it doesn't. What else? Who wants to have more. Oh, never enough. Never enough. Winning at all costs. Oh, man. Throw all the rules out. Whatever we got to do to win, we're going to win. Come on. Yes. Yes? Pleasing man rather than God. Pleasing man rather than God, yeah. But you see what I'm trying to say, at the core, at the core of the world, is a misplaced love. Love for the wrong things, a love that will disappoint. And what are we told? We're warned about the world. Do not love the world. And so, see, really, when you, get, when you get the imagery of the book of Revelation, I don't think there could be any greater imagery than the picture of the world as a harlot who seduces. She seems so attractive. She seduces only to be those who fall for her seduction are headed for doom. Do not love the world. And it's interesting, again, back in Revelation. I love this picture. It's giving a picture of Babylon, the world, and it says, come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. I'm going to tell you something. The world is a formidable force. There have been many. Um, Mary Ann and I leave leaving tomorrow to go with a, a three other pastors and their wives. Years ago, we were in our 30s, which obviously was a very long time ago. We were young men who were starting our ministries, and God had been very faithful to us too. Uh, our churches were growing churches, but we began to notice some of our... Uh, Friends who had been with us through seminary, and a number of them who had been very, very sharp guys moving along, but they were beginning to fall into various kinds of immorality. These are preachers. Preachers in evangelical reformed churches. I'm going to tell you something nobody's exempt from what we're talking about. That's the world, it is seductive. And when we let our guard down, we can be sucked into it. And it's disastrous. Mm-hmm. And so there's this plea, come out of her, my people. Don't fall for her. Don't be seduced by her. First John says, the world is passing away. And yet how many people how many people? Look at what's happening. Look at what's happening in the world. Yeah, marriage. Look! Look what the world system has now taught us about marriage. And that's the world system. We have a church. Now you got to understand. We're in the Bible Belt, and and Greenville. I'm going to tell you some the Buckle of the Bible. I mean, I'm telling you. That. It's, it's very, very conservative overall. Uh, and yet we had the major, one of the major churches there, First Baptist Church, which is not a Southern Baptist church, just recently made it very, very clear that they would perform homosexual marriages and allow for gay um, clergy and so forth to be a part. This is a this is in the heart of the Bible, Bible. Now where did that come from? You see, the world has presented a system. It's presented a system. And even those who profess to be believers are falling into it and accepting its ways. You see, you follow. Them. That's the word. Alright. Now let's go to one that's much more personal. The flesh. You do realize you are your own worst enemy. Have you ever heard that expression? Well, that's really true when we get to this whole thing of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed. Remember, we're talking about opposition. So we've got the world. The world's the environment, the system of evil that is like a great harlot that seduces us into it. And then we've got this thing called the flesh, that sinful nature that all human beings are born with. And even after we're regenerated, and we're given a new heart, and yet there's still a struggle with the remnant of that sinful nature that's left. When I was a little boy, this is going to be a little bit, but, well, I'll, I'll tell it to you. When I was a little boy, uh, my... My parents had a place out in the country that was a place we would go. We called it the farm. It really wasn't a farm. It was a couple of fish ponds and a little cabin. And my father loved to go out there. And uh, we'd spend summers out. And when I was a little boy, right up the road from us was a real farm. And uh, there was a, the the farmer's son's name was Buster. And Buster was about my age. And I couldn't wait to go up to the real farm. I got to milk cows. I got to bale hay. I got to do all kinds of things, and I was staying up there one night, and uh, it was late one afternoon, and I was invited to stay for dinner, and so my parents let me stay, and, and uh, Buster's mother sent him out to go get the chicken for dinner. And so Buster goes out, and I'm telling you, this is the honest and honest truth, Buster went out, and Buster got this chicken, and he comes out. You know what the chicken did? It ran around. <laughs> Making the bloodiest mess you've ever seen. Now, let me tell you. For all practical purposes, that chicken was dead, right? He had no head. He sure did make a mess. Now, it's kind of like our old flesh. For all practical purposes, it's dead. Oh, but my, what a mess it can make. The remnant of the sin nature that's left within us. And it's very, very interesting that when Scripture, when it speaks about the desires of the flesh, and some of your older translations find the word lust, right? The lust of the flesh. Well, it's interesting that that is a Greek word, epithumia, which is a compound Greek word. Epi means over or over the top, and thumia means desire. So it's an over-desire. It's those things that you feel like you can't live without. I have to have them. And that overdesire can even be for good things. For instance, there are people, I mean, love. Well, love is a good thing. But there can be those who so want it, they're willing to throw out everything in order to get what they think is love. See, that's the overdesire, desire Things that are overly important. And so we've got this battle that goes on inside of us. We've got the flesh here with that remnant of that old nature, those over-desires, those things that we think we want, those things that we think will give us pleasure, those things that we think will make us happy. We've got all those things, and we've got that struggle with that. But then we've got the Spirit of God within us, and there is an intense internal battle that goes on. You know about it? Have you experienced Come on. You've got to be kidding me, right? You've experienced it. I'm really the only one. i Man, maybe I'm off base here. But it's a battle, you know, and, and it's an intense battle, a fierce battle between the, the, the flesh and the spirit. In Galatians, the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and such things as this. I warned you, and I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm going to tell you something. There is in our day... The witness of our church has been, not your church in particular here, but the witness of the church of the West has been deeply hurt because of too many Christians who've compromised, and too many Christians, Christians who don't take seriously their call to holiness. Too many who've given over to this. Now, if you follow what I'm saying, here's how you the enemy is, you've got, you've got the, the, the greenhouse and you've got this sinful nature that's just wanting to grow. And so you put that sinful nature in, in the hot house, the greenhouse of the world, and it just comes up and it just grows. And so you find Christians over and over again, people who are Christians, who are compromising their lives. I mean, the divorce rate, unbelievable. Things that are happening to marriages, things that are happening with uh, uh, people with these terrible addictions, huge addictions that are taking place today. Where does that come from? It comes out of the old nature. It comes out of that. And I'm going to tell you something. Every one of us has the potential for a terrible fall. And if you ever think that you get beyond that, you're kidding yourself. We're on dangerous ground. And the world is the environment that teaches us to compromise. That's the flesh. And that battle is intense. You remember Paul in Romans 7. I love this. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. I think about that often in my life. I don't get it, why why do I think that way? Why? I know better, but I do this. I mean, I talked about that yesterday, we're gonna talk again a little bit more about it later today, but but I know that there has to be a change of the secret of the affections of my heart, and there I know that it's the love of Christ that controls me. Oh, but I love myself. And I continue to go back to myself and my own selfish ways and my own selfish desires. And that's our pattern. That's, look, here's what I'm saying. That's the default mode we go to. The very things that we ought to cherish most, we let go. Because of our own personal pleasures and desires. In ministry, I've dealt with so many people who have gone through major, major falls, (laughs) moral tumbles, and various other things. And it's amazing how it starts. Oftentimes, in the home, in a marriage, relationship is not great really haven't taken time to build a marriage as the marriage should be built. Priorities aren't being given. Especially find a lot of times with younger couples who've been married and the kids come on the scene and you're in the middle of working your way up into world and the husband and the wife are exhausted. They have no time for each other. And then the marriage doesn't go well and there are difficulties in it. and Before long, um, this just happened a young lady meets somebody who listens and who's compassionate. She's not getting that at home. But she's getting it there. And she's willing to leave everything. Because there, her needs are being met, And they aren't at home. You see, I mean, it's a sub It's these little subtle things that happen. That's the flesh. And don't you step back sometimes at your life and you look at it and you say, I don't understand. Here's Paul. The very things I want to do, I don't do. The very things I don't want to do, I do. And there's this intense inward struggle that goes on in your life. And the problem is, Because we've lived in this world of compromise, it's so easy for us to make those steps and to go to the flesh. Rather than to do what we're going to talk about in a little bit, crucify it. Well, that's the flesh. With me? World, environment, flesh, worse than human nature. And then we have The devil, right? I gave you this passage. Be sober, be mindful, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil. Your adversary, your adversary. He is not your friend. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. And we talked a little bit about that yesterday, that he's a a fallen angel and one of the greatest uh, victories, I'm absolutely convinced that he ever, uh, one of the greatest victories that he achieved was to convince people that he's not a real spiritual being. I'm going to tell you something, Satan's real. If you look at the next page, but remember this about him, he's not omnipresent, he's limited. He's not omniscient, however, he has superhuman powers, and he's not omnipotent, I'm I'm sorry, not omniscient, but he has superhuman wisdom. And he's not omnipotent, but he has superhuman strength. But here's the neat thing. God limits him. Um, Here's the best way I know how to put it. God has Satan on a leash with a choke collar. He can only go so far you remember the story of Job? God put limitations. So Satan's power is limited and his influence is limited. But we must never underestimate his subtle ways and his deceptive strategies. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Oh, he's slain. And you remember the passage in Ephesians And we've got to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand. I love the language here, the schemes of the devil. See, that's who we're up against. So, here it is. We are in this environment that's going to pull out the worst out of us. We have a remnant of that old sin nature left in us and left unchecked unguarded, undisciplined it's going to go the way it wants to go and we're going to yield to it and then you've got Satan doing everything he can to cause us to dishonor Christ that's the battle I don't know about you you're pretty intense to me well here's the point The Christian life is a life of warfare. It's a struggle. Uh, In Ephesians, Paul says, we must wrestle with. We're in enemy territory. And this is a warfare that each person has to wage. As long as we're on this earth, we will be fighting. We cannot let our guard down. It's a lifelong battle. And we kid ourselves when we get too comfortable. We get too comfortable. And then there's the subtleties of the world. And the old nature within us. And we've got Satan, who is an angel of light, saying, oh, look at this. Oh, you would be much happier here. Remember when we talked about happiness and joy the other day? Happiness is based on certain Oh, listen, you will be happy if you do this. And maybe you will be happy for a season. But the end is disastrous. It's a life of warfare. And therefore, we must be armed for this warfare. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Mary and I went with another couple in our church just recently to see the movie War Room. Does that come up here? Yes. War Room, anybody seen it? What was a war room? The war room was the um, woman's closet, where she secluded herself to the scene that. It was a prayer closet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see what this is saying? It's not the weapons that the world has. the different weapons. And whatever you think about that movie, you know, it wouldn't be something I'd take a skeptic to. But it sure was encouraging mm-hmm. for those of us who believe because here is this woman who was on her knees in prayer. And the power of prayer is awesome. And probably all of us, and here's what I want to say to you. When you are experiencing various kinds of opposition in your life, I'm going to tell you the place that you start the battle is on your knees, in your closet, before the king. And I'm going to tell you something. There's a battle for your children's souls. Boy, those of us who are parents, and Mary and our grandparents, you look at these little kids now and I think, what in the world will they face? Mm-hmm. We had better be in prayer. Those are our weapons. And for those of us, those, of, those who may have rebellious kids or those who are going through times with loved ones or a rebellious spouse or whatever it may be, I'm gonna tell you something that starts with prayer, Mm -hmm. powerful prayer. It's amazing what can be accomplished. John Pike on his little book, uh, it's not a little book, but I think the best book on missions ever written, Let the Nations Be Glad, talks about prayer he says, prayer is a walkie-talkie. Now, some of you who are younger to people, you probably don't know what a walkie-talkie is. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a walkie-talkie. That was the things the soldiers used in battle. Walkie-talkie on the battlefield in pursuit of, of, of the enemy. And this is what he says. It's not a domestic intercom for the comforts of the saints. It's for battle. It's for warfare. And I'm thinking about that in my prayer life so often. What is it? Oh God, help me be help you know do this for me and do that for me and do this other for me. We want this God because we want to be comfortable. And I'm thinking, where is the war prayer? But we are praying. Touch. And then you know about the whole armor of God. I put in your syllabus here. I found this several years ago. It's a prayer a book called The Adversary as a prayer to put on the arm of God. Now, it's kind of long, but you can simplify. But i found times in my life where it really works to sit down and pray, okay, God, I want to put on the belt of faith because today I know I'm going to face falsehood and I want my life to be a life of truth. The breastplate of righteousness, don't let it be my self-righteousness. Let me the righteousness of Jesus and what he's done. Let me put that aspect of his righteousness on that enables me to live a life that on you. The sandals of peace in this world that is so much turmoil. God, let me be an instrument of that peace and let me experience your peace even in the midst of the battles and the warfare and the shield of faith because I know that I'm going to be exposed to fiery darts that are going to come to me, darts of fear, darts darts of shame, darts of guilt that have come to me, they're going to be coming at me. But let me hold the shield of faith out. And then let me put on the helmet of salvation so I can protect my mind because my mind is constantly being bombarded by the things of this world to lead me off track. Oh, but then, let me take the sword of the Spirit. Let me take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Let me, O God, rest in your word and fight with your word. And remember when Jesus was tempted, what did he do? He quoted the scripture. And therefore we're to hide the word of God in our hearts. That's the battle we're involved in. Let's never be too comfortable. Let's always be on the alert. And let's be moving forward with offensive prayer and the honor that God has given. And may we be able to withstand the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because in the next hour, what I'm going to tell you is, is Jesus has beat them all already. So we're going to look at that next. So let me pray. (coughs) Father, um, we all are tempted, and sometimes we yield to those temptations. The temptations of the world, the temptations that come from our own inward flesh. The temptations that come from Satan directly. And God help us to be armed, help us to be prepared for the battle. And I thank you again that even in this fallen world, that you have not left us defenseless. But you are our shield, you're our fortress. But you've also given us the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, and you've told us to go forward into this battle. Because one day the King is coming and make all things right. Until then, may we be faithful soldiers, standing firm for the sake of the gospel. For we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I think we've got about ten minutes right here, so before we move forward.